It's so good to see you. My name is Timothy Atik. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And if we've never been in the same room together, if you're new around Watermark, I'm just so glad that you made it. And I am excited to jump into the topic of marriage with you today. I want to start just by sharing with you that when I was back in high school, I decided uh, to take a college visit to Texas A&M University, which is where I ended up going to college, and that was the third best decision I've ever made in my life behind trusting Christ and marrying my wife. Uh, so third's still pretty good. Um, but on this college visit, I was living in Dallas, was gonna go to College Station, and I convinced my parents to let me just make the trip by myself. Like, I didn't need them. I could do it by myself, and they agreed to it. Uh, but at the time, smartphones didn't exist. That kind of dates me. Um, Google Maps wasn't a thing. So the way that I got directions back then was, hey, Dad, how do I get to College Station? He's like, you're going to go on this road for a really long time, then you're going to hang a left on going that road for a really long time. And I was like, great, I'm headed to College Station. And so I began to make my way down uh, I-35, and then when I got to Waco, I got on Highway 6 and began to head to College Station. And... After I'd been on Highway 6 for about an hour, I was honestly surprised that I'd yet to see a sign for Bryan College Station. And so I just decided that I'd wait a little bit longer because surely at some point Bryan College Station is going to show up. And so I waited a little bit longer. And after I waited a little bit longer, I decided to wait a little bit longer. And after I waited a little bit longer, I just figured I'd wait a little bit longer. And after I waited a little bit longer, I saw a sign that said Eastland, Texas, 30 miles. And uh, the reason that that sign was meaningful to me is because Eastland was like home away from home for me growing up because I have an aunt and uncle there, like second parents for me. And I found that shocking because my parents knew that I wanted to go to Texas A&M. And at no point did they mention that's amazing. If you go to A&M, your aunt and uncle, who are like second parents to you, they actually live very close to the college that you're going to. We never had that conversation. And so I decided to pull over to a gas station to purchase a map of the state of Texas just so that I could make sure that Bryan College Station was coming up soon. And I just want to share with you what I found out. Here's the map. And you can make all the Aggie jokes you want, but <laughs> to just kind of get us all on the same page. Started in Dallas, got to Waco, ended up close to Eastland, and at that point, I was actually further from College Station than I was when I left Dallas three hours earlier. <laughs> and that trip, my first trip driving to College Station was a six to seven hour trip, which was amazing. <laughs> that moment, standing at that gas station, looking at that map, 
it was two things. It was sobering and it was defining. It was sobering because I realized that because of my bad thinking that surely, surely Bryan College Station will just magically appear at some point. If I just keep going, it will all work out. That thinking got me into a lot of trouble and I found myself in a place that I never thought that I would be on that day. It was defining because I was finally able to start heading in the direction that I actually wanted to go. And I was finally able to get to the place that I wanted to be. The reason I share that with you is that my hope is today, my hope is that for some of us today feels like we're opening a map when it comes to marriage. The reality is that if many of us were honest in this room, if you were honest where you're at in your marriage, you'd say that your marriage is mediocre. Like, I would imagine that there are people in this room that would say, you know what, it's just not what I thought it was. Like, I never thought that we would be in this place. Like, when we said I do, this is really not what I envisioned. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you, when you interact with other couples, something in you begins to just wonder. I wonder what it would be like to be married to that person. I wonder how my life would be different if I had married her or I had married him. And I would imagine that for some, the idea of divorce has, has become more of a viable idea and an option in your mind than it ever has over the course of your marriage. Okay, here's what I want you to hear this morning, and I hope you don't miss it, okay? You don't need a different marriage. You need a different way of marriage, okay? You don't need a different marriage but you might need a different way of marriage. So my hope is that this morning feels like we are pulling off into a gas station, purchasing a map of marriage, opening it up, and for some of us, it's going to be sobering because we're gonna realize that we have bought into a mentality of surely it'll get better someday, surely I'll just kinda keep doing what I'm doing, we'll just keep going the way we're going, and magically it's gonna get better at some point. It's gonna be sobering for some to just see, you know what, we're in a place that we never thought we'd be when we said, I do. But then my hope is that it's going to be defining and that there would be many marriages that begin to head in the direction that God would have you go. And you're going to get to a place where you begin to experience the goodness of God in your marriage. So if you have a Bible, turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be. As Blake said, we've been in this series called Made. If you're new around Watermark, just visiting, checking things out, we are walking through Genesis chapters one through three very slowly. Because these three chapters inform us what we have been made for and what we've been made to do. And so last week and this week, we're talking about the fact that we've been made for relationships. And marriage is one of those relationships that God has made for many of us here. Now, Blake talked to the single people in the room. I want to do the same. So if you're here and you are single, let me just encourage you, don't take the posture that this morning isn't for you, because it is. I'll give you a couple reasons why it's for you. Number one, if you plan to get married one day, you hope to get married one day, my hope is that God might use this talk to save your marriage before it even begins. And my hope is that this talk might in some way inform who you even look for in a spouse. Number two, though, 
If you're single, the reason I want to encourage you to dial in is because you're a, you're a part of the body of Christ. You belong to the family of God. And you have brothers and sisters who are married. And one of the best things you can do, and I believe that you have a responsibility to do, is to pray for the marriages in the body of Christ that you attend. Just as married people have a responsibility to pray for the single people that are in the family of God here. And so you might even find this talk helpful when you consider how you encourage your married friends. The last thing I want to say to the single people in the room is, is sometimes when marriage is talked about in the church in general, it's possible for, second, for single people to, to walk away feeling like they are in some way uh, JV or kind of second-class Christians. Let's just be clear. Like, marriage is not the pinnacle of um, following Jesus Christ. Following Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of following Jesus Christ. You can be a wholehearted, passionate follower of Jesus Christ as a single person. Jesus was single, Paul was single, and they seemed pretty complete. And so I just want you to hear me say, like, even as we look at Adam, and it says, it's not good for him to be alone, and that means that Adam was incomplete. I just want you to know, a lot has changed since then, In you as a single person, you are not JV and you are not incomplete without a spouse because everything you need for life and godliness is found in Jesus Christ, okay? So here we go, Genesis chapter two. Um, This is the account of God creating marriage. This is the map. This is what we need. You can read all the marriage books you want, but let me just encourage you, if you read these eight verses and you take them to heart, It has everything you need to get on the right path for a marriage where you begin to taste the goodness of God. Here's what it says, starting in verse 18. It says, And God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here's what I want to do. Okay, there's going to be two sections to this talk. The first section is just appreciation. What I want to do is I want to walk you through the verses that we just read just so that you can appreciate God's invention of marriage. And then we're going to turn from appreciation to application, and it's going to feel like we're standing at a gas station looking at a map of of marriage. So let's just walk through the text and appreciate God's goodness in giving marriage to Humanity. 
Verse 18, it starts out and it says, then God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Now, you have to remember the context. You can't read Genesis 2 in Genesis 1 in chronological order. No, Genesis 2 zooms in on one specific aspect of Genesis 1. It zooms in on the creation of the first human beings. In Genesis chapter 1, there's six different times where God creates and then steps back, looks at what he's created, and declares that it is good. Then there's a seventh time at the very end of Genesis chapter 1 where God looks at what he's made and declares that it is very good. The verses that we just read fall in between the sixth declaration that it's good and the seventh declaration where God declares that it is very good. The reason that that context is important is sandwiched right in between the sixth and seventh declaration of goodness. We find God saying, it is not good. This is the only time in the creation story where God identifies something that is not good. John established last week that when God says it's not good for man to be alone, he's not talking about something evil. He's, he's indicating that something is incomplete. The reason that it's not good for man to be alone because in the state that Adam was in, in isolation, he was incomplete. Let's get more specific. Why is it not good that Adam was alone? Why was, he Why was it bad that he was isolated? Well, you have to remember the point and purpose of the first humans. Remember what we learned in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. What does it say? It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So Adam has been created in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that God created Adam to image him on the earth. Adam's job was to reflect and represent God so that the earth would know what God is like. Well, what do we know to be true about God? He's a triune God. He's a relational God. God himself is a community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are three co-equal Co-eternal persons that exist in one essence, at the core of who God is, are deep, meaningful, intimate relationships between the persons of the Godhead. So God looks at Adam in isolation, and there's a great reason now why he says it's not good that he's alone. Why? Because the image of God in Adam was being distorted. If God is a relational God and Adam's responsibility is to reflect that relational God, Adam was incomplete. He was incapable of doing what he was made to do, which was to fully reflect God. And so God says, it's not good for me to be alone. So watch God's response. What does he do? Verse 19. <clears throat> now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, why does God do this? Well, he does it because of what mission he gave Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1. In verse 28, God tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. So what does this mean? When God brings all the, Adam, the animals to Adam to name them, that's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, exercise dominion over them. Do what I told you to do. By naming them, 
Adam was establishing authority over them. Now, I, I just love thinking what this was like. Like, just try and put yourself in the story. God, he just starts parading the animals in front of Adam. He's like, hey, man, you do you. Like, you, you just call them whatever you want. That sounds so stressful. Like, our firstborn... For the first two hours of his life, he was baby boy Atik because we couldn't decide if he was going to be Jacob or Noah. And yet God's like, you just name all of them. Like there is no go to Barnes and Noble and get all the, the book name, like the book of names. You can't Google most popular names in 2022. It's a blank slate. So I just wonder what it was like if Adam's like, lion. God's like, Solid. <laughs> Bear. I like it. Platypus. Really. Aardvark? Okay, dude. All right. Pump the brakes. Like, I, I just wonder what it was. I would have loved to be there. It's just fascinating that God brings all the animals, but he doesn't just bring the animals for Adam to name them. Look at what we find out in verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but, that's a contrast word, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God brought the animals to see if there would be a suitable helper for Adam, and we are meant to feel the tension. We are meant to feel his isolation, okay? One, uh, one commentator just are, uh, explained it like uh, Adam seeing all the animals march by two by two and exclaiming, everybody's got a date, or not, not everyone's got a date, but everyone has its partner, but I have no partner. That interesting? Like, everyone's got a date to the party, but Adam. Like, everyone gets the college date party t-shirt, except Adam. Like, we are meant to feel the tension of him sitting in his isolation. So, watch, watch what God does. Verse 21. Okay, this is, this is every anesthesiologist's favorite verse. In the, like, this is their life verse. Like, this is why they do what they do. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. I love that. The reason that God puts Adam to sleep is because the, the creation of the woman, the creation of marriage, God gets all the credit for it. God takes the initiative. He knows what Adam needs more than Adam knows what he needs. And what we see is a proactive, good God seeing the needs of the one person alive and meeting them. That's how good God is. He puts Adam to sleep so that there's no credit that anyone else can take. It is all an overflow of the creative goodness of God. Verse 22. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I, I love this verse because it says that God took a rib 
and then he made it into a woman. That, that word, the Hebrew word that's been translated made is the Hebrew word bana. It literally means built. God built Eve. So just think about it. Everything else in all of creation that captivates us with its beauty, God simply spoke it into existence. But when it came to the creation of the woman, God built. So it's just a little nod that, that nothing else in creation got God's creative energy and activity more than the creation of the woman. But not just that. The thing I love most about the verse is when it says, he made it into a woman, watch this, and brought her to the man. So, who introduced Adam to Eve? God did. What a great story. So, here's what you need to know. If you're a newlywed, there's a question that you're going to get asked a lot. What's the question? How'd you guys meet? Like, people want to know your story. And you'll still get asked that question later in life, but the older you get, the more used you get to answering the question. But here's the way things go. Like, when you're newlywed and someone asks you, hey, how'd you guys meet? This is what every newlywed couple does. Like, the, the man and the woman, like, turn and give each other a look. <laughs> and it's the look of, like, we're about to bless them. <laughs> like, we... They don't know what they don't know, but they're about to know. <laughs> like every, every couple thinks that they have the best story, and so the, the guy and girl will give each other a look of like, Are you gonna tell it? Do you want me to tell it? But I like how you tell it. Okay, we'll just kind of tag team it. Like there's that. Okay, let me, let me just lovingly and gently tell you, if you can't tell your story in three minutes or less, people regret asking. <laughs> okay. But when you think about a marriage story, no one has a better story uh, than Adam and Eve. Hey, Adam, how'd you guys uh, meet? Well, you know what? It's really interesting. Um, I was the only human being on the planet. Uh, God put me to sleep. He uh, took one of my ribs. He custom made a woman. He brought her to me. We were both naked and the rest is history. Like, that's a great story. There's no better story than that. And that is just the goodness of God at work. And watch the man's response, verse 23. Then the man said, what does he say? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Do you know what that is? That's poetry. This is the first time that a human being speaks in the Bible. Shockingly, it's, it's a guy speaking first. And, and the thing that he says is poetry. Now, if you're dating someone and guys... If you're writing poetry for her, you might as well put a ring on it because you're in love. Like, that, that, that's just it. I mean, still go through merge, still make sure that it's a good thing, but if you're at the point of writing poetry, you're done, man. That's the way it goes. That's it. 
It's poetry. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Like that, that was God's intention, that a man and a woman, one man, one woman, would come together, and they would become one flesh. Do you know why that's cool? That specific wording, that they would become one flesh? Because marriage just became the clearest picture that we have of God on the planet. If God's a triune God, he is three persons, yet one in essence. And we try and come up with cute, cool illustrations of, of the apple or, or water to try and illustrate the Trinity, Trinity, but they all fall short. Marriage is the clearest thing we got as two become one. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That sounds pretty good. That's the creation of marriage. Can we just appreciate that? That when God creates marriage, there's no brokenness. There's no insecurity. There's no bitterness. There's flourishing. There's a man and a woman that have come together and there's joy. So, why is it that so many of us read something like this and it feels so foreign to us? Well, this is the point in the message where it's going to feel like we're pulling over to a gas station to purchase a map and we're unfolding the map. And my hope is that from here on out, as we move from appreciation to application, that this moment might be sobering but also defining and that some of you might begin to move in the direction that God would have you move so that you can begin to experience the goodness of God again in your marriage. Remember, you don't need a different marriage. You might just need a different way of marriage. And so what I want to do is I want to roll back through the, the eight verses that we've looked at here in Genesis chapter 2, and I just want to, I want to highlight some keys to you experiencing the goodness of God in your marriage. Like if, if, if you want to get on the correct path towards marriage, then first, your, your marriage, in your marriage, the husband and the wife must dignify one another. Like you and your spouse, you must begin to dignify one another. What does it mean to dignify someone? To dignify someone is to treat them as important, impressive, valuable, and respectable. So just think real quick. Does, do those words describe how you treat your spouse? Do you treat them as important, impressive, valuable, and respectable? Where do I get that from in the passage? Well, if you look back at verse 18, it says, for this, it's, it, says it is not good for a man to be alone. Do you know how we see God dignifying Adam? Because God is most attentive to Adam's needs. God is, God is making Adam more important than anything else in creation. God is zeroing in giving all his attention to, to the man. He's dignifying Adam, but then we see God dignifying Eve. It says, I will make a helper. A helper. That word in the Hebrew, that's been translated helper, it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of those times, they are referring to God himself. So think about how God is dignifying the woman. He's saying, uh, I, will, I will give her a label that I myself have as a helper. 
says, I will make a helper fit for him. That phrase, fit for him, in the Hebrew can be translated equal and adequate. She's equal. She's equal to the man. So she has great value, but she's also adequate. She's not a clone of Adam. She's a complement to him. Like God had a choice. He could have just put a bunch of dudes in the garden with Adam for them to bro out together. <laughs> but instead, he, he custom designed a woman to complement him. So he's dignifying the woman. And then we talked about the fact that when God made Eve, he, he built her. And so here's the reality. As God creates marriage, what we see God doing to the man and the woman as he creates marriage is what we must do to one another in marriage. We must dignify one another. Just as God gave importance and value to Adam and Eve, we must do that, we must do that to one another. I think about it this way, okay? My wife, Kat, and I, we got married on October 14, 2006, okay? And when we stood on that altar at First Baptist Church in Wichita Falls, Texas, I did something with Kat that I've never done with anyone else. What did I do? I made a covenant in front of God and a couple hundred witnesses. And when I stood on that altar, I promised and committed to do certain things within for Kat, and God was a part of that commitment. I have not done that with anyone else. Kat is the only person on the planet that I have a covenant with. I don't have a covenant with my kids. I don't have a covenant with Watmark. I definitely don't have a covenant with any of you guys. Here's what that means. If Kat is the only person in the world that I've made a covenant with before God, then that automatically means that there is no one more important on the planet than Catherine Atik. No one. Next to Jesus, no one is more important. No one should be more important. Nothing should be more important to me than, than Catherine Atik. And the same should be true for you and your spouse. So here's some good questions for me to ask and for you to ask as well. Okay, does your spouse feel most valued by you? Does your spouse feel most important to you? Does your spouse feel most respected by you? Who or what is your spouse having to compete with? Okay, what about this? Let me put it this way. Who or what gets your best? Who or what in this world, who or what gets your best? Like, who gets your greatest encouragement? Is it your employees? Is it your kids? Who gets your, who gets your greatest encouragement? Who gets your best apologies? Who or what gets the best of your creativity or the best of your thoughtfulness? Who gets the best of your strategic thinking or your excitement or your sense of humor? Who is it? Is it, is it your Friend group? Is it your coworkers? Is it your assistant? Is it your boss? Who gets your best? Who gets the kindest of your speech? It should be your spouse. But often we are 
too comfortable with our spouses. And so if we want to get on God's path for marriage, we have to begin to dignify one another. Here's what you have to understand. If you leave your spouse to wonder, like if you leave your spouse to wonder if they are important to you, if they are valued by you, if they are impressive to you, if you leave your spouse to wonder, your enemy will tempt them to wander, to find it somewhere else. We have to begin to dignify one another. The second key, if you want to experience the goodness of God in your marriage, is this. It's, it's, it's a mouthful, okay? Regularly revisit your original commitment and don't rene- renegotiate it, okay? Regularly revisit your original commitment and don't renegotiate it. Okay, where do I get that from? Look back at verse 23, which is the poetry. <clears throat> what did Adam say? He says, this is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, Walter Brueggemann, who is, who is one of the most influential Old Testament scholars of the last few decades, he makes this observation. He finds a double meaning in both the, the Hebrew word that we've translated flesh in the Hebrew word that we've translated bone. He finds a double meaning. So Walter Brueggemann translates those words bone power and flesh weakness or flesh frailty. He believes that these words can be expressing two extreme possibilities and include everything between him, between them. So listen to his conclusion. This is fascinating. The poles of flesh frailty and bone power mean to express the entire range of intermediate possibilities from the extreme of frailty to power. Thus, the relationship affirmed is one which is affirmed for every possible contingency in the relationship. As we affirm in the marriage formula, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. Here the text says, in every circumstance, from the extreme of frailty to the extreme of power, a relation is affirmed which is unaffected by changing circumstances. So it's possible that when Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, embedded in there is a commitment that will not waver no matter the circumstance. That's why I say that I encourage you to uh, revisit your original commitment. Revisit it. I'm talking specifically about the vows you gave on your wedding day. Revisit your original commitment and then don't renegotiate it. Okay? Uh, Kat and I, we've been married. We just celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary a few weeks ago. So let me show you a picture of us on our wedding day. This was us right here on October 14, 2006. And then this was us just a few weeks ago celebrating our anniversary. Uh, You say, ah, but uh, Kat and I actually came to the conclusion that we have aged out of selfies. Like it's, it's just too close. It's like, it's too high of definition. Like it's, it's, we need some distance from the camera. 
But you know, we came up on our anniversary, and then uh, as I was preparing for this message, I just went back and looked at the vows that we shared with one another on our wedding day. Now, you need to know I'm an Enneagram 4, which means I need everything I do to be unique, and so we wrote our own vows. So I'm just going to share with you what we shared, okay? This is what we shared with one another on the stage, okay? And watch the commitments that we made to each other. I, Timothy, receive you, Catherine, as God's gracious provision of a wife. Today I enter into this covenant, remember she's the only one I made a covenant with, with you and God. Okay, so I'm acknowledging that this agreement is in the presence of God. God isn't just witnessing it, he is a part of it. With you and God knowing it's never to be broken. With Christ as our sole foundation, I commit, there's the wording, I commit to walk intimately with our Savior so that I may love you with the love of Christ. I pledge, that's another commitment word. I pledge to journey through life with you, watch the wording, regardless of the circumstances, and to be faithful to love you all of my days, knowing that you are God's will for me. I proclaim before our friends and family that my sole desire is that Christ would be glorified in us and through us until death do us part. Now, I go back and read that. I'm like, okay. That's a, that's a major commitment. <clears throat> and the reality is that when Kat and I shared those vows, we weren't just entering, we weren't just doing like a cute little tradition. Like, vows aren't just like this ritual where it's like everyone does them, so you just... Google it, you know, cut and paste. Doesn't matter what you say. You just have to have them. No. Uh, vows at a wedding, you, you have to understand, they're not a formality. They're not just a cute little tradition. When you stand on that altar, you are standing before God with witnesses making a commitment of what you will what you will do. And so it is important that Kat and I, we, we stand on the fact that we made a commitment to one another until, until death. Now, have there been times in our marriage where not being together seemed easier? Yes. Have there been times where we have been in the marriage counselor's office? Absolutely. Is it possible that we might be back in the marriage counselor office at some point? We're open to it if we need it. But the reality is we made a commitment to one another until, until death. And we didn't just make a commitment to stay together. We made a commitment to love one another. That's why we have to remember that love isn't something that you fall in and out of. Love is something that you sometimes feel but always must choose. And so, you know, a song that's been meaningful to me, I've quoted it here before, but Brent, Ben Rector has a song called Note to Self, and in it he says, Note to Self, keep, keep choosing her. She's yours and wonderful. Forever's a long time to be sad. It's just good, a good reminder. Like Kat and I had a five to ten minute fight last night. I just wanted to make sure that I was getting ready to talk about marriage. So I was like, let's do this, all right. <laughs> but here's the reality, like, my responsibility is to keep choosing her because she is wonderful. 
and forever is a long time to be sad. And so I want to answer a couple questions for you right now that I hope that you hear. Because I'm encouraging, to go, for you, I'm encouraging you to go back and revisit what you said in your vows. But here's the first question I want to answer for you. Is there someone else in this world that you could probably have an easier marriage with? Probably so. The answer is probably yes. Is there someone in this world that you could probably have an easier marriage with? Yeah. Here's the second question. Is there someone else in this world that you could have a more God-glorifying marriage with? 100% no. Because just because a marriage is easier doesn't make it more glorifying to God. God is actually glorified when married couples fight with one another and then pursue reconciliation together because our message of the gospel is a message of reconciliation. And when we are faithful to one another, when we fight for the marriage, when we love one another unconditionally, all we're doing is pointing to the love that we've experienced from Jesus Christ. So you need to know the person that you're married to now, I can tell you that there is no one that you could be married to that you could glorify God more with right now. And so let me encourage you, revisit your vows. Go back and look, what did you commit to do? What did you promise before God? How long did you promise to do it? And don't renegotiate it. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, well, you know what, this message is a little too late because you're divorced right now. Okay, well, let me, let me just say this. If you are divorced and you and your former spouse, if neither of you has gotten remarried yet, then here is what I want to ask you to consider doing. I want to ask you to consider going back and looking at your original commitment. I want to ask you to go back and look at the vows that you made on your wedding day sit with those vows, read them, then get on your knees and open up your hands and just say, God, have your way with my life. That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm just asking you to consider that. Okay? The next key truth to experiencing God's goodness in your marriage is this. Practice oneness. Practice oneness. Remember what verse 24 says. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When I talk about practicing oneness, here is what I'm really saying. Don't miss it. All I am saying is be who you already are. Because in God's eyes, when you said I do, you're no longer two separate people from different families. You are now one. And you are one family. So in God's eyes, you are one. So when I say practice oneness, I'm just saying be who you already are. Oneness refers to spiritual intimacy and emotional intimacy and physical intimacy. So practice oneness. Here's the problem. Too many couples operate solely as roommates. So you live in the same place. You get up at different times and you go to work in different places and you come home at different times and you, you eat dinner together sometimes and separate other times and then 
at night, you kind of find your place on the couch, and she finds her place on a different chair, and you all kind of do your thing. So you live in the same place, and so you're technically married, but you're not acting like you really are, that you're one. And then too many couples function solely as teammates. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait. I thought we were supposed to be teammates. You are. But too many people are functioning solely as teammates, where you got your team of kids, and it's like, okay, so tag, you're it. Okay, you're going to take the kids, and you're going to drop them off there, and, and I'm going to be over here, and then I'll pick them up, and then we've got 10 soccer practices that we need to get to tonight, and so we're going to divide and conquer, and you're going to go there, and you're just like ships in the night, and you've got your whole family calendar, and everything is color-coded for each kid, and so y'all are teammates taking care of the team, getting it done. That's that's good, that's important, but you are more than teammates. You are spouses, and you, you're one. You're one. And so let me just encourage you to take a step, number one, with, with spiritual intimacy. I want to I wanna challenge every husband in the room this week. You pick the time, either in the morning or the evening, and I want to encourage you to, to invite your wife to pray with you. And for you to ask your wife, hey, what's one thing I can pray for you? And then wife, you ask your husband, what's one thing I can pray for you? And then husband, you take the lead. Y'all get on your knees, hold hands, and pray for one another. Do that as many days this week as possible. In terms of pursuing emotional intimacy, my encouragement is to establish recurring non-negotiable date nights. Kat and I have really benefited just from Googling great date night questions that will keep you talking for hours. And then physical oneness, begin to move towards sex regularly. Regularly is different for every couple. We talked about it months ago, but with the discussion guide for this talk, I will repost some of the questions that you can sit with your spouse and ask. But one of the best things you can do, guys, is just evaluate your rhythms as a couple. Because you have to remember rhythms and routines can sometimes lead to ruts. So like for Kat and I right now, one of the, one of the routines that we've identified is right now, my teenage son and I, a lot of nights we're watching Stranger Things together, which is kind of fun. But then my wife is going and falling asleep to friends in the bedroom. She's more of a friend's listener than friend's watcher because she just sets it up and turns the other way and falls asleep. And that's great. But even the other night, I was like, okay, this isn't, this isn't the best thing. Like, it's, I'm having fun with my son, and I know Kat's enjoying the extra rest, but like, we, if, if we're not careful, that routine will lead to a rut. So evaluate. Move towards oneness, practice it. Next, quickly, model and reward vulnerability. Model and reward vulnerability. What did 2.25 say? It, says, it said that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. What does it mean? It means that there was complete openness in the marriage. There was complete trust. And because there was complete trust, Adam and Eve stood before each other with nothing to hide. They were fully known and fully loved. That's what you want in marriage. 
That is the greatest gift that Kat has given to me in our marriage, is that she has allowed me to be fully known and fully loved. And so I remember we had a conversation before we got married where I just shared honestly with her about different unhealthy decisions that I made prior to marriage, and she did not flinch. Instead, she extended the grace of God to me. And then in our marriage, like my my personality is one that has battled anxiety for a long time. And so there have been different times in our marriage where I have dealt with deep fears. And when I've shared those fears with Kat, she hasn't flinched. But instead, she's spoken truth to me. And she's, she had a choice. She could either conclude that she married a crazy person, the verdict's still out, or two, she could extend the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the sweetest thing, to be fully known and fully loved. Let me just ask you, is there anything in your life that is hidden from your spouse? If there is, let me just encourage you, some point in the next 24 hours, share it with them. Not, not as like a punishment, but for your joy and for the health of your marriage. I remember... This couple asked me to officiate their wedding. A couple weeks before their wedding, I just asked them, I said, hey, have y'all had a conversation where you have shared everything about your past? And the guy said, no. He, he refused to share about his past. And I just said, I, then I won't do your wedding. And, and it wasn't because I was trying to put them in the hurt locker because they're gonna have to find a new officiant. It was more like, I, I would hate that for you. To enter into marriage, hiding from the person with whom you should feel most safe. So model vulnerability for one another and then reward it. When your spouse is vulnerable with you, you meet them with Jesus. Don't ever weaponize what they've shared with you against them. And then finally, live on mission. Live on mission together. Live on mission together. If you were to go to Ephesians chapter 5, we don't have time to do it right now, but if you were to go to Ephesians chapter 5, it's one of the longest passages on marriage in the New Testament, one of the most important ones. It even quotes Genesis chapter 2. But do you know what we see it saying? It is, it is telling us that marriage between a man and a woman is meant to reflect a greater marriage. The marriage between Christ and the church there's a reason in Revelation why the church, the people of God, is referred to as the, the bride of Christ. See, our stories, our marital stories, exist to point to a greater story. And it's the story of Christ's love for his church, that he has, he has come for us, that he has laid his life down for us, that he has conquered Satan's sin and death on our behalf, and he has made a way for you and I to experience a real, enjoyable, intimate, eternal relationship with him. So here's what you need to know. Your marriage exists to put the goodness and the glory and the love of Jesus Christ on display. I still remember a friend of mine saying, Reese Graves, he told me, he said, your marriage will be your greatest ministry. Isn't that crazy to think about? I'm standing in front of thousands of people right now and I still believe that my greater ministry will be my marriage. Because marriage is the clearest picture of God, the triune God, three in one. 
It's the clearest picture that scripture gives us of Christ's love for the church. So my encouragement, if you want to see your petty arguments just kind of dissipate, live on mission together. Like begin to pray for unbelievers together. Start inviting unbelievers into your home and in sharing Christ with them. Start serving together in the children's ministry or at Merge together. Lead a foundation group together. Get on mission together. You will feel alive because you are doing what your marriage was created to do, which was to put the glory of God on display. Your marriage doesn't exist first and foremost for your companionship. It doesn't exist first and foremost so that you won't be lonely. And it definitely doesn't exist first and foremost so that you can have sex without guilt. No, marriage exists to put the beauty of Jesus Christ on display. Live on mission together. I'll just circle back to that drive I made to College Station that landed me 30 miles outside of Eastland. I just want you to imagine, what if I never pulled over to that gas station and looked at that map? Like, what if I just told myself, you know what? Surely it'll happen. Surely we'll get there. I'm just, I'm just going to keep going. Surely it's bound to happen. Well, eventually there would be one of two options that I would choose. One, to just bail on the trip altogether. Or two, to settle being somewhere that I never wanted to be in the first place. You have a choice in your marriage. You can either just keep going. You can just either keep saying, you know what? I'm busy. I've got a lot going on. I'm just going to keep, surely, hopefully, it will get better one day. And you're going to find yourself either bailing altogether or just settling for a place that you never wanted to be in the first place. Or this can be a defining moment where you just say, you know what? It's time to make a turn. We have a map. God loves us. He cares deeply about our marriages. And he's given us a path forward. Would you take it? I want you to know there is hope for your marriage. And there is help for your marriage if you want it. We have, we have ministries here. Reengage is here. We would love to help you. But then for some of you here this morning, I'll close by saying this. For some of you, this isn't about the map of marriage. This is a map of your eternity. And the reality is that maybe you've been on a path that you thought is headed towards eternity with God because you know what? You're just, you're doing the good thing. Like you're, you're coming to church some and you're trying to live a good life and you, you give money to different people and, and you're trying not to be a bad person. You view yourself as a good person. My hope this morning is that you might be standing at a gas station holding a map, realizing that the path you're headed on is not going to take you where you want to go. Jesus Christ in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. Why? To invite us into a real enjoyable, intimate, eternal relationship with him. Do you know him? Do you know him? If not, would you come to him this morning? Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, I pray for every marriage in this room today. I pray that hearts would be soft, that we would hear your voice, God, that we would respond to you. We need you, God. Wherever healing is needed, I pray that you would grant it. Wherever it feels like hope is lost, Lord, I pray that you would reignite a conviction that there is hope and there is help. And we thank you, Jesus, for your love for us, that you are the greater love story, that you gave your life to save us. If there's anyone in this room right now that does not know you in a real way, may they put their trust in you today. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.